Welcome, everybody, to Behind the Blade Podcast, Episode 6. My name is Jim Stewart. With me today is Matt Martin. And today, we're talking about the Ultimate Steel Lottery from us.kniferights.org and what it can do for you. We're also talking about history with Bob Loveless. Not with Bob Loveless, but about Bob Loveless. I'm positive that'll be great. Tech tips about production knives and your Q&As this week on Behind the Blade Podcast. Welcome to Behind the Blade Podcast. This is Matt Martin, and I'm sitting across from the very handsome Jim Stewart. Oh, thank you. We have got some <laughs> news for you guys this morning. Um, I know it seems like we're covering a lot of switchblade laws and uh, repeals of bans and all this, but to be honest, we're we're kind of in the like. Remember as kids watching news of the Cold War on yeah. you know evening news with your parents or grandparents or whatever yeah, definitely and it was like everything was either Star Wars and not the movie franchise but Star Wars <laughs> and the space race yeah everything was Cold War related and we're kind of in that era of of knife news right now uh, we're really trying to get the nation off of this switchblade ban and because of that we're trying to keep pace with it as complete amateur journalists yep so what do you have for us jim what is the latest news on the switchblade the, front the latest news on the switchblade front is to talk a little bit about knife knife has a little bit of a lobby in washington and and across and across state level too for multiple different states on doing pro knife things like repealing the federal switchblade ban and local state level switchblade bans. Please. So so what they're doing right now is they're 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 responsible for actually a lot of litigation, including the litigation behind the lifting of the ban in Colorado switchblades. Woo! Yeah, that was and that that's phenomenal. One of the things they do is that they host a fundraiser to 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 gain money so they can continue lobbying for all these awesome pro knife things that we really that that all of us really love and enjoy. And one of them is called the Ultimate Steel Spectacular. It's a little a little flamboyant, I think, maybe, but <laughs> but it gets the point across. And I've seen this model before too, and it's and it's always very successful. Basically, um, every time you donate to them, you get entered into the ch- into a chance for a drawing. Now, on the face, that doesn't sound amazing, until you learn that there's over two hundred thousand dollars worth of prizes, including an African safari. That's bananas. <laughs> yeah, I'd be like, hey, we get switchblades off the books. And I'm going to go to, on an African safari. Yeah, that's like, pretty cool. I donated $1,000 to that. I yeah. want an African safari. It's pretty awesome. So it is It is pretty sweet. Every single donation at, with, a, with at least $20 with approvable receipts, I mean, I've seen this before and a couple other things too, gains you an entry. So you can enter as many times as you want, Which and every single time you do, it's a donation. I mean, so it obviously ups your chances to win. And there's lots of lots and lots of really, really, really cool stuff, including an SE Azula, CE100 Nemesis, Cold Steel Swift 1, a Hogue Damascus, EXAO5, Sog Flash 2s, and of course that really sexy African Safari trip, yeah. which which I would totally I would totally go on into that. The, no, I don't mean to interrupt, Jim, but sure. this is a good time to bring this up. We do get a lot of private messages as we are covering the switchblade repeal or ban repeal, I should say, uh, of what can I do? What as a listener, what can I do to help with the effort? Well, guys. Um, this is it. This is something that you can really do to actually help with the effort. And uh, Jim, if you would be so kind as to share a link on our Facebook page, Behind the Blade Podcast, then can do. you guys can go right there, do your part, and help these guys out, help fund the fight. You know, it's like buying war bonds at this point, except it's a war bond you can exchange for an African safari or an <laughs> Azula if you're not that adventurous. <laughs> yeah, there are, there are different levels of entry, um, but the more expensive levels obviously go towards the more expensive stuff, but it's all up for grabs, man. Over $200,000 worth of, of stuff that you can win 
uh, with this with this stuff. Um, no, I'm assuming these sure. are all donated. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So yeah. They're, they're, they're not donated. coming out of pocket. No. So your money's not going towards an Azula that you're going to be getting back. These are all donated by. Uh, I don't, what's the word for that? Uh, beneficiary. Uh, beneficiary would be good. Okay. I think. I think we're just going to go with out. beneficiary. Yeah. If we're wrong, then just keep that under wraps because that's not like a knife <laughs> fact. I don't want to hear about it. That's <laughs> not something that's usually right. within our realm, you know. So, so whatever. Um, if you'd like to know more about this, you can definitely check out a number of links that's on knifenews.com under the under the article entitled "Knife Rights: Ultimate Steel Mega Lottery Funds Knife Law Reform." Sounds and- like a Japanese game show. <laughs> <laughs> Funds Knife Law Reform. Super fantastic, absolute happy fun hour. (laughs) Ichiban. (laughs) Number one. Number one. (laughs) But, um, yeah, so, um, and also, also on top of that, there's a piece of federal legislation right now, which was introduced by Anthony Biggs, which is an Arizona representative, to sponsor the Knife Owners Protection Act of 2017, also known as COPA, K-O-P-A. And it aims to repeal the Federal Switchblade Act of 1958 that we've recovered. That we've is that the only we've covered a couple of episodes. Is that ago. the only line item on that bill? Because it sounds a lot more broad strokeish than knife. It, you know, it does. It doesn't really. It doesn't really go into more of it on this article. But I can definitely follow this link and see if there's anything more than just than just that. And if any of you guys are really good at reading legalese, sometimes I get lost in the verbiage on these bills. But uh, the long and short of that, I'd, I'd be interested in hearing. If somebody does some research out there on that, I'd be really, really interested to hear what else the COPA Act is supposed to cover. Yep, yep, us too. Definitely um, get involved in it. Post on our Facebook page or email us at info at behindtheblade.podcast.com and, and we'll be ho- we'll be absolutely sure to to... You know, tell people who you are. Yeah, give you a shout out. Yeah, <laughs> sure. unless you Absolutely. want anonymity. So uh, right, <laughs> or or a fake name, <laughs> or a fake name. This uh, this this segment brought to you by Santa Claus. Yeah, by Roy whatever, Biggins. <laughs> whatever. Yeah. You're <laughs> Frank Rizzo. Yeah. <laughs> 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 so, so that's that's really good. I know that I'll be donating to this a little bit later, a little bit later today, and I hope you guys will be too because it's really important to protect our knife rights from people who have no idea what they're talking about. Of course, I, the one thing you know, I got to be honest with you. In Michigan, we have a ban on daggers. <sighs> I'm signing <laughs> into the side. microphone on purpose. <laughs> now, look, I get it. I mean, a dagger is a purpose-built tool. We all know that, but there is something about a dag that just it really does it for me, and I. It's hard to justify to the courts like, well, I wanted to carry a dagger as an EDC because really it's nothing more than a letter opener right. if you EDC it. Fortunately, most time I'm opening letters with my pocket knife. so uh, <laughs> It's a natural transition and leap for you. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. it makes sense. But I would love to see that lifted because I just enjoy carrying them. Even a small short – there's a ZT – what is it? The ZT-0150? Yeah. Have you ever seen those? Yeah, yeah. A little, a little, just a little guy. It's just a yeah. little tiny boot knife if you want to call it that, but it has two good edges on it. I mean, daggers are hard to get sharp geometry on anyways if they're narrow bladed but this one they're s30v there i have one it's super hot i loved carrying it back home i think it's under three inch blade if i'm not mistaken yep. and i'd love to carry it here without ending up in the who's gal for some sort of infraction well yeah this know? definitely looks like it's a usable knife too i mean it's 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 a it's a it's a knife it's a dagger with geometry of an actual knife with it with while still being while still being a dagger it is and Absolutely. to me it's it's the same as like a double bit axe yeah because you yeah. have one to show and one to go you have double the cutting edge so if one goes dull you can still carry out your daily task yeah. with the other side well and that certainly applies with a knife like this where it's geometry really really matters usually on a usually on a dagger especially really steep ones the, the geometry means that it's totally useless rubbish for yeah. anything else like but, a fairbane sykes commando dagger oh one yeah of my top favorite knives of all time uh i'm a pattern two guy that's probably my favorite one they mm-hmm. have one two and three uh you know the pattern one had the s grip with the knurled handle 
or I'm sorry, S guard with the knurled handle. Pattern two had the knurled handle out of brass, but with a straight guard. And then the third pattern is probably the most iconic, and that is the ringed grip. And so it's nice. grooved all the way around, circumferentially grooved. Um, but that would make a useless EDC. And if you were carrying that, either you're dressed up for World War II reenactment or you're <laughs> mall ninja extraordinaire. I, I mean, look, I've carried mine on a leg sheath just because I liked it and I wanted to. So, but I'd like to be able to do, I'd like to be able to carry a small double-edged gentleman's boot knife, if you will, like a Gerber guardian or something like that and not have to go to prison for it. Right. Absolutely. So. Yeah. You, again, you should be able to carry whatever you like. I agree. And it should and, be up to intent, man. Yep. It should be up to intent. Okay. Well, we've clearly found you stabbing this guy to death. So we're going to go ahead and tack on this weapons yeah. charge. Okay, I get that. Yeah. Sure. But <laughs> yeah. Free the dagger. So that's that's the next plate. Let's let's hopefully we can get this switchblade thing under control. Right, all right. And and, 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 we'll and if this works, if the if the Copa works and this fundraising thing works, you know that more awesome stuff is on the horizon from this lobby and it and it'll be great. Yeah, it'll I mean it's time for it. I, look, the knife is not the most nefarious tool in the criminal toolbox anymore. You know, and not that right. they aren't still used, but let's be completely frank with it. I think personally in my world, this is very simple. We put a dollar limit on what's a weapon or not because uh-huh. most of these things go down with kitchen knives. Most murders or assaults go down with kitchen knives. And then beyond that, mm-hmm. you know, uh, subway muggings and stuff, it's going to be Pakistan knives purchased at a liquor store. Yeah, all the time. Never, never do you see high dollar value items or knives or anything in, anything that we make or anything that we collect and like being used illegally. Right. And it, so let's put a dollar amount on it. I think if it's over 300 bucks, you should be able to carry it. I don't care if it's a switchblade dagger. You, right. You know I, and that's just me. Right. And so... Right. right. Well, you just price it out of their reach. I right. mean, I mean, I mean, and and I hate to say it, but but crimes are mostly committed by pe- violent crimes are mostly committed by people who don't have a whole lot of money. Right. Lower income so, bracket. Yep. So I mean, take advantage of that common statistic that we've known about it for decades. Yep. So, all right. Word. What else you got, Jim? All right. So I got a little bit of devastating news for those for those of you out there who are huge Chris Reeve fans. I'm a Chris Reeve fan. I'm You're carrying- Chris. Re- You're carrying yours, aren't you? Bam. Oh, you want to hear it, guys? Bam! There, there it yeah. is. There it is. It's a no. It's a twenty-five. Yes, yeah, so it's a twenty-five. All right, I've got a large twenty-one. Oh, nice. Yeah, no, they're 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 great knives. I do like them a lot. Chris Reeve, unfortunately, is discontinuing his tie lock. So, as you guys may or may not know, the tie lock is a very unique type of type type of locking system that that functions a lot like. Um, what would you compare it to? Would you compare it to anything, or is it would, pretty unique? I would compare it to a spine lock that was moved to the blade. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's how I would say it. it. Looks like the locking mechanism, as we're used to it being on the, you know, tang side of the knife. It's like it mm-hmm. spans over. It's like it's been flipped around. Basically, yeah. it's really innovative. I just. I don't think the world was ready for it yet. Right. There there was obviously a lot of thought put into the execution of this and having the lock clear the blade like if it was going through something. Um, I guess it just it wasn't doing it for, for, for the consumer base, and they are discontinuing that tie lock, which means... Uh, one of two things could possibly happen. Either it'll completely die out, and nobody, no, people will sell them off for cheap and get rid of them, or they go up in value. So, so if you're gonna sell it off for cheap and get rid of it, just give us a buzz first if you don't mind. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What's the current rate on eBay, by the way? Yeah. No, I, yeah, I, I do so. think. I mean, this is what happens with collectibles. You know, especially mm-hmm. in the knife world, is that something gets discontinued. Um, a large portion of the customer base, even if they never bought them while they were in production, throw a fit and say, why did you discontinue? This is my favorite <laughs> knife. I was waiting to get it. And then the value spikes. Yep. And inevitably, somebody tries to open a paint can with one, 
breaks the tip off it, and the remaining balance of knives out in the world, the value goes up on all of them. Right. A little bit. You know? Right. Absolutely. Because so. it can be just 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 by bringing attention even to a failure. Yes. I mean, I mean, it just all, all, you know, all news is good news. That old axiom. Yep. So uh, that's definitely that's definitely true. I mean, I know that happens with I know that happens with my knives, and I'm not going to talk about my knives too much, but but we do have people at least once or twice a week email us and say. Hey, why don't you guys make model X, Y, or Z anymore? Right. I'm like, well, because they didn't sell. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't care if it was your favorite knife. But, you know, you guys aren't a custom knife shop. You guys are a production knife shop. Right, right. We we just feed the monster. We yeah. feed the monster, and we come up with innovations. But sometimes it doesn't work out. But enough about me. So, what are you carrying today, Matt? Or should I answer that question no, first? What are you carrying today, Jim? <laughs> what am I carrying today? I'm carrying a true saber knife. True saber was founded by. A very cool guy by the name of Todd Walensky, and he's got and uh, what, what I'm carrying is an extremely ergonomic knife, and the model name totally escapes me right now, which doesn't help the listeners, you guys, at all. At all. We will but, post a picture but, of our what's in our pockets <laughs> today for sure. But we'll be posting a picture on the Facebook page, so make sure you check that out. This is an extremely ergonomic, sharp little knife. What I do know about it is that it has it has beautiful carbon fiber scales, Corby bolts that hold at a quarter inch lanyard, and it has like a brute to forge look to it. But the interesting part about this is that this blade, I know for a fact, is CPM 20 CV. Okay, so you know what right? I think that is? I, I I get what he did on there. He he left some of the texturing on there, which yeah. gives a really good effect because he did get a really bright satin on it. He did, uh, and it looks really good. And one thing I do, I know Todd personally too, uh, and one thing that he is extraordinary at is his edges. Oh, yeah. I, you know what I mean? Yeah. I, he is, if you ever run into Todd at a knife show or something like that, True Saber Knives, ask to see his personal carry knives. And these things are friggin' laser beams. <laughs> I mean, they're unbelievable. <laughs> and this is this is a hot, you know, I don't even know, what, this is a very unique style. I don't know what I would call the blade profile. Yeah, uh, it's it's like a mix between a drop point Warncliffe clip. Yeah, yeah, with, exactly. with with a curve. But yeah, I mean, it just fits in your hand in all all different kinds of grips. So that's that is a sweet mm-hmm. blade. And no, he it's he light put and fast. He did tell me the story about it, but um, and then well, I'm sure we'll follow up on the Facebook page with a little bit more information about it. But it's extremely ergonomic, and I do know that he put a lot of creative, constructive, educated thought into this design, and it is very cool, and it is extremely comfortable, and it's it's a true saber edge, and it's wicked, wicked sharp. Yep. And Todd's not a sponsor of the show or anything. No, no, so we're, we're just, just talking about knives. So yeah, we just like is, the dude in his knives. So you can you can so, believe what we're saying because we're not even getting paid to say that on this. No, one. So, not at yeah, all. In fact, uh, he doesn't even know that we're saying this right now. Yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna tag him in this after the fact. Hey, we talked about you in this episode. <laughs> yep. Bye. All right, Jim. Are you gonna, you gonna <laughs> ask me what I'm carrying or what, dude? I know you're burning. I am. You're simmering. Yeah. Anyway, we're gonna talk about something else now. No, <laughs> the look of horror <laughs> Matt talked about. All right, Matt. Here it is. The burning question. What are you carrying today? I thought you'd never ask, Jim. I'm glad you asked that. <laughs> So, all right, so I'm carrying three tonight, guys, which is my usual. Uh, yeah, that's my, I usually carry three knives. I usually carry one utility knife, whether a slip joint or like a Leatherman or Gerber multi-tool or something like that. And today, um, as you guys probably know from episode one, I have it on me every day is my Camillus US demo knife uh, in stainless. It's a 99 model that I've had since 99. Uh, knew so that year one of, one of my favorite pocket knives i have right there <laughs> as we referenced before i've got the chris reeves sabenza 25 which these are cool they have the uh ceramic uh what, Cer- ceramic, it ceramic detent, yeah it's a ceramic is also the lock interface if i'm not mistaken is it also the detent i thought it was it's, just the lock interface no it's both because that, that is it they what they did is they it looks like it has a little window on the top of the lock face where yeah. the ball comes out right and then the ball is pressed in on the side right on the inside of the lock bar 
and that acts as the detent also. Very oh, clever. Awesome. So, yeah, you can see where the lock bar rests when it gets to the detent recess. Nice. Yeah, yeah I see that it pulls in. Very cool. Yep. And so, okay. very sweet knife. S35EN. One of my least favorite steels, by the way, but uh, that's just an editorial piece. But uh, I won't hold it against this knife because it does take a good edge. It holds it reasonably well, which is kind of mm -hmm. my thing about S35VN. But, uh, I, you know, I used the shit out of this. Or, I'm sorry. I'm trying to cut back on the cussing, so bear with me. We'll probably have to put up a curse jar or something. But I, I do use the heck out of this. And, uh, Every time Matt curses, you guys need to donate to us. Yeah, yeah there you go. Yeah. You guys will be the curse jar. But the Coupe de Grace, oh. as they say, uh, is... This Randall 14 that I scored from Derek over at KnifeShipFree.com. It is absolutely beautiful, too. Yeah. It is really cool. I got so excited by our bit last week on the Randall history that I could not live another day without it. So I had to sell some personal knives that I owned, and I was able to score my only Randall in the collection at this time. And this is the 14 Sawback Carbon Steel Blade, which I believe they still use 01 on these. Mm -hmm. Just a beautiful, big, robust fillet, solder fillet around the nickel silver guard. Classic Randall style. Oh, Absolutely. Man. You know, it's just, it's what dreams are made of. And it's uh, the finger grooved handle out of green linen micarta, mortise tang with a lanyard tube. And it's, you know, you guys get it. Like, there, there are just certain <laughs> knives where you're mm -hmm. like, I don't know if I'm going to, you know, this, look, I use a Felkneven S1. That's my camping knife. I don't need to have this giant, um, masculine compensation that I drag around with me everywhere, right? <laughs> and so when I go camp, my Falcon even S1, and so a lot of guys use Moras, which I think are great knives. Mm -hmm. I mean, sure. Really, in my opinion, the cheaper the more, the better. Oh, yeah. Because the twelve dollar one works fantastic. It sharpens up nice. It's 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 a great knife for the price. I mean, you can't you can't really do much better for that price. Right. So, and I know a lot of you guys, you know, Bark River fans, Convex Geometry. A lot of guys carry different customs. I know Andy Roy's um, uh, Fiddleback Forge. Mm -hmm. The Bushcraft crowd's really into that. Oh yeah. And the Bushcraft crowd would laugh me out of the building if I showed up with a Randall fourteen. But I tell you what, I like it. I have used it. I'll be honest, mostly to cut open bagels and a couple boxes and stuff like that. You know, late night snacking. It's a long blade, so it cuts right through. It cuts a bagel. one whole slice of cheese yeah. off that big block in one swipe. Yeah, it's so terrible with knives. But, uh, but yeah, a beautifully crafted sheath. It's got a little, I think it's a Norton, you know, stone, the, the pocket stones. All right, let's. Let's talk about stones on cheese real quick. I know we just did the SOG collaboration, you know, mm -hmm. Mac V SOG with you guys. Yeah. And we put a stone pouch on there, in my opinion, and Jim is really the sharpening guru between the two of us. Uh, I just play one on TV. I'm okay. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's got it figured out. <laughs> to me, there is no pocket stone that is worth a damn except for the Felkneven DC-3 or DC-4. Mm -hmm. The 3 and 4 are... Um, they're in reference to the length of the stone. So the right. three is three inches, four is four inches. Yep. And the DC is diamond and ceramic. So one side is sapphire ceramic, the other side is diamond. And they both feel really aggressive when you get them. If you just use them a couple times, they'll break in. But to me, that is the pinnacle of pocket stones for something that you can have attached to a sheath. Yep. And have it be effective. I, I would have to agree with you on that one for sure. I didn't even know that existed until you handed it to me. You got and, and you went, you gotta check the stone out. Isn't that awesome? And then oh and then I put an edge on it in like less than a minute. So and that's that was, what they're that, made for field meetings, right, right? Right, it was perfect. Then my knife was feeling a little dull anyway. I'm like, yeah, let me try it out. And like three three X strokes on one side, three X strokes on the other side, and I had a hair popping razor sharp edge i mean granted it was maintenance to the geometry and all that and there's a bunch of other factors it wasn't like from scratch right. or anything but it was but as far as maintaining your edge man 
hit, hit it on that diamond side, hit it on the ceramic side, and it is good to go. Yep. I mean, it's it was excellent, and those stone those stonework edges are always phenomenally sharp. They're always great. Um, and I'm really, really happy that you introduced me to that because I was about, I, I was like, I was like, well, if I bring it to my shaped in glass stones and my You're Norton, right. my Norton, my, my Japanese, my Japanese water stones that are work really well. And I spend a couple of hours on it. I'll get you a really nice edge. And there's and about like, 30 pounds in your pack, by the way, uh, what he yeah, just described. Point, yeah. yeah. At that point or more. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I have one stone, one Japanese water stone. It, it's about 4,000 grit all the way through that weighs like seven pounds on its own. It's a rock. It, it's, <laughs> it's a rock. Yeah. It's a precision hewn rock. <laughs> It was run about eight times through a wet saw. Yeah, <laughs> it's awesome. pretty much what it was. But but yeah, no, I get great results off of that. But that DC three from Faultleven, man, it's probably how much is that? Like thirty bucks? Yeah, I think so. Thirty bucks. Yeah, I, I think Derek carries them. Uh, I think Jason might even carry them at DLTTrading.com, and I know you can also find them on Amazon and stuff so, like that. But I mean, they're they're killer. Oh no, they're they're awesome. I mean, just the edge that I got off of that was great. And the only thing that I would follow it with, because I'm a stropping guy, is just a strop with some just basic black compound on there. Yeah, and just to burnish off whatever you put on there. And then it's even, and then it's even nicer. But like you're talking like ultra quiet, not even a whisper shaving, ultra clean, baby smooth hair. Yeah, one, you can one hear pass. the hairs leaping off. Yeah, that, I mean, well, no, it was tree topping. You remember that? Yeah, yeah I was yeah. running it through the hair That's on my right. arm, tree topping, not even touching my skin, and you could see the hairs flying out of out of the forest, if you yeah, will. Yeah, exactly. I love it. <laughs> so it was it was great. So you. So if you got a Mac V Sog or any sort of stone pouch or anything, definitely pick up one of those plates yeah, for thirty bucks. Yeah, and throw them in there. You know what I mean? You can you can really bend the the little what what are the aluminum oxide yeah. stones that come with most of the knives. You know what I mean? So yeah. really, they're they're cool to give to kids and stuff like that. But if you're serious about having a tool attached to your sheath that you're going to use to maintain your knife, that isn't. I mean, I've seen these things look like dog bones. They get so worn oh, yeah. and they're curved out. You know, the the aluminum oxide or the carborundum stones they mm-hmm. get worn out. And what that does is it affects your ability to maintain geometry as you stroke across the stone. Well, yeah, yeah. You, you dip down and then you dip up. So right. you have to like either follow that geometry. And but if you're holding the spine totally straight, then one side of your knife is going to be steeper than the other side of your knife. Exactly. And you're not going to get and you're not going to get an even thing. So at that point, you either got to take a diamond plate, just another just straight up diamond plate to it to flatten it out, or if, or just throw it away and buy another throw, one. Throw it away. It's thirty yeah. bucks. Yeah, exactly. So I well, mean, and the the DCs, the uh, Falknevens, they they don't wear out. So the yeah, the nice. sapphire side. Oh. It's sapphire Ooh. ceramic, and so which is it's like an industrial grade sapphire, and the other side's diamond. So I mean, it's kind of like jewelry. Maybe for your anniversary, you get your <laughs> wife a, a nice ring with sapphires and diamonds, and then she can get you a nice pocket stone made of sapphires and diamonds. So <laughs> it's a match set. Yeah, it's true. And, and so that sapphire, you know, just like uh, some of the bearings on watches and stuff like that, or the crystals on watches. I mean, they just they don't abrade, they don't wear out. So you always have that flat geometry. So enough of the. The, uh, pocket stone commercial and uh enough of my randall speak because i'm, I'm <laughs> totally in love with this knife all right you guys we're gonna see you guys in part two where we talk about history with bob loveless be right back this segment of behind the blade podcast is brought to you by our friends over at copis designs it's k-o-p-i-s designs colorado-based company that specializes in some very very well thought out edc gear Um, Their STK, the sliding tool and knife, just had a very successful Kickstarter campaign. And the thing is like a titanium S35VN toolbox that just fits in your pocket and provides a multitude of functions. Anyways, go check them out at www.copusdesigns.com. 
and you can use the discount code behind the blade for a temporary 10% off site-wide. Everything these guys have to offer. Mention our name because we're so special. Behind the blade on copusdesigns.com and they will hook you up with a 10% discount. So go check them out on Facebook and Instagram and pop into the website. Be sure to let them know that we sent you. All right, and we're back. Uh, Welcome to the history segment of Behind the Blade podcast. Uh, I'm trying to sit closer to the mic for this, you guys. I know we're catching a lot of flack, and (laughs) we'll address that later. But uh, I hope hope this uh, is good on the old ears. I know a lot of you guys are... In the trenches, as we like to say, and you're cranking this up over machines running in the shop and stuff. So we'll try to do our part to make sure that the audio is on point so that you can hear what it is that we're saying while you are practicing your labors of love and making knives in the garage. Which we absolutely would love to hear about yeah, if you ab- email totally, us totally. at info at com. That's us. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, Matt, who are we talking about this week? Man, we are talking about the man, the myth the famed knife designer and maker Bob Loveless, Robert Waldorf Loveless, as his folks called him, I'm sure when he was in trouble. Uh, I've seen some interviews with Bob where he absolutely prefers to be called Bob. So for the remainder of this article, we'll leave out the Robert Waldorf. I don't want to have any bad dreams of being visited by an angry (laughs) knife maker spirit. Uh, You know, Bob Loveless is a a major, major inspiration and influence on um, our work at VM and Knives. You know, it's, I just, I can't, it's hard to articulate what an impact his designs had on me personally. And mm-hmm. just, he had something that he pushed, you know, really hard. It was called visual tension. Jim, you yep. use this a term around your shop every day. Yeah, every single day we talk about visual tension and proportion. So, what is visual tension no, so these guys can get so, right in on this? So for all of you designers and even, even some of you consumers or just knife enthusiasts, what visual tension is is its proportion in the knife from the blade to the handle to the features in that order. So, so uh, or, or it could be handle blade features. So it's like you take your idea and you draw the idea, whether it's a blade or a handle or the whole knife, and then you start adjusting the lines ever so slightly here and there, top to bottom, left to right, right to left, diagonal, corner to corner, until the knife looks proportionate and fits to your artistic eye. And it almost has like a movement to it. Right? Yes. I mean, when you look yeah. at a static object, it looks like it's it looks like it's moving. It, I call it doing 300 miles an hour standing still. Right. If you've ever seen that knife, it, and it doesn't have to be a loveless knife, but if you've ever seen that knife where you're like, that just has the look. Right. The lines are right. There's no flaw. There's no, I wish the handle was a little less goofy. Or, you know, right. It has to have that look. Right, 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 right. And, and... Uh, I, I'm to the point where with visual tension where it's like I'll start nitpicking my own stuff. I'll be like, what if I change the degree of this handle by one degree? And, I, and at that point, I, sh- I know that I should quit. Right, right. I, sh- I should quit. I'm done designing. But 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 he was massively, massively known for, for his visual tension in knives. I mean, I think I think you could say that he probably coined the – coined. I don't know about coining the term, but – but it was definitely uh, an attribute that he pushed big yeah, time and that he, that he exercised regularly in his designs. Well, absolutely. Bob was born uh, January 2nd of 1929. And uh, these facts are coming from only the cited sections of Wikipedia. So anything that was hearsay or unsighted, I am not going to regurgitate because I can't say that it's fact. Uh, but he was born January 2nd of 1929. And we lost Bob Loveless September 2nd of 2010. A sad day. Um, you know, yeah, this. 
there's so many cool anecdotes and stories, but I mean, this guy, <laughs> he was just born to do this thing. And I know that I am talking <laughs> to a couple of guys in the trenches right now who were also born to do this thing and never forget that. If you look up some of Bob's old works, you'll be like, holy cow. I, there's still hope for me yet. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah, so, definitely. But he was just born to do it. And when he was 14, he lied on his birth certificate so that he could join the Merchant Marines. And then later he served as an Air Corps control tower operator in Iwo Jima. So he spent some time in Japan, which I thought was pretty cool. Um, he was a learned collegiate scholastic type. You know what I mean? <laughs> he, he went to Chicago's Armor Institute of Technology, which was you know later coined uh, Illinois Institute of Tech, IIT. Um he also studied what, – what, let me see. I'm going through my notes right here. Uh, he took architectural courses. He, Whoa. Re, yeah, returned to Ohio and studied literature and sociology. He was a very well-spoken man. If you've ever watched any interviews with him, yeah. I mean, the guy was uh, – you know who he reminds me of in his speech? Who's that? I hate to say this on the air. Okay. I hate to say this. <laughs> if I was going to use curse words, it would be right now. He reminds me of Rob Bixby. Oh. When you hear Bob speak, yeah, he – uses this depth and accuracy to his vocabulary. Right. And the only other person that I've talked to that reminds me of the way Bob used to talk is, is Rob Bixby. And I love you, Rob. I think you're a great guy, but <laughs> you know the rest of the story. So <laughs> um, going back to what I was saying about some people are just born to do this. In 1953, he came back from a float in the Merchant Marines and he went into an Abercrombie and Fitch, which uh, we've touched on this before. Oh, yeah. It, it, everybody seems to, like, float around Abercrombie and Fitch, come in and out of exactly. Abercrombie and, it's not and just Fitch. Early 2000s or late 90s, it was mm -hmm. just, like, very bro-y clothes. You know <laughs> yeah. what I mean? It's like just orange T-shirts. I'm like here to pick up chicks and wear hemp necklaces. Yeah, exactly. So. Aeropostal style. You know, well, they used to be an outfitter, and he went in to go buy a Randall knife. He heard about the lead time, which was something to, like, oh, my goodness, six months. And he said, screw it. I'm going to go make my own. And right. so he went to a junkyard and he spoke to the guy there and it was able to figure out what the best steel to make a knife out of. And what they came up with uh, was a 1937 Packard car leaf spray. <laughs> That's the Sounds best familiar. And Sounds so familiar. He took that back and, uh, you know, he actually made it. On his ship, if I'm not mistaken. So, yeah, here we go. He forged it on the oil-fired galley stove of the ship on which he was serving in the Merchant Marines. Uh, and, and then he, right next to the burgers? Or yeah, yeah, exactly. So he's in there, and he, he said, you know, I, in some interviews or writings, he actually... Jim's dying over there. Yep, but sorry. Was, they, very courteous not to cough into the microphone. Um, <laughs> yeah, he said that he was getting some flack, and I, I want to say that he had to... Uh, he had to hurry up before in between meals to heat treat this thing and temper it and get it all done. I mean, it's crazy. I mean, this guy, he was like, I'm going to make this knife. Well, he made the knife and in his commentary and his anecdote stuff that I've read or heard through interviews or books that he wrote. Um, he said that the, the sales rep at Abercrombie and Fitch was really snarky with him and oh. he was just really rude. And he, he, he kind of looked at him. Here's this, this merchant Marine coming in wearing, you know, basically dock worker clothes, right. Walking into this exclusive. Probably, probably that same famous loveless hat too. Yeah, probably on top of the that, welding yeah. right. cap that he used to wear. Um, <laughs> And he walks in, he asked for a Randall knife, and the guy kind of treated him as if he couldn't afford it, and then very snidely commented that they're on back order for six months, and, and Randall kind of picked up his toys and left in a huff. Mm -hmm. Or, I mean, uh, Loveless left in a huff. And then he goes, he makes the, sh the knife on board the ship, which got stolen, by the way. I don't oh, know did it really? Yeah, his first knife oh. got stolen, according to Bob's oh, writings. Yeah, it grew legs. Um, he goes and makes the knife, and he, and he brings it back, and he throws it on the counter, kind of as a 
uh, thumbing of the nose. Mm-hmm. See that? I didn't even right, press right. That. Didn't yeah, even yeah. say. <laughs> oh, I can't say it either. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so, go ahead. Yeah, so he comes in and he throws this knife down that he made, and just kind of trying to thumb his nose at the company and be like, "See, I just went and made my own." Well, the manager was so impressed that he he actually bought them. And so oh, really? He, he bought a nice. I want to say he bought a gross. I think he bought uh-huh. a dozen, dozen of them. Okay. And uh, Loveless printed out. Uh, he had him. Uh, put together a purchase order. He took the purchase order to the bank, uh-huh. and w- against that purchase order, the bank lent him money so he could get the tooling that he needed. Whoa. And he just went right into it. So he never. He re- started with a large order. He started. That's awesome. As a production maker, he called That's himself great. a bench maker because sure. he only made his own designs. He didn't take custom work per se, right? Right. But right yeah, right. Uh, right out the gate. That's they were awesome. Like, this is a great knife, and eventually they outpaced Randall ha! at Abercrombie, uh, Abercrombie & Fitch. They oh outsold God. Randall knives. That's badass. Yeah. That's bad. That's, That's uh, it's awesome. <laughs> That's really good. That's, I'm um, having trouble with this, but we're going to get it. That's so, awesome. I mean, it's really cool. So imagine, you know, as you guys are out there doing that, imagine, and you guys who are customers too, listening to the show, just, just think about that. I mean, think about you know, the lore and the mythology that surrounds Loveless Knives. And the truth of the matter is, he just decided to make a knife because he couldn't afford a knife or he couldn't want, he didn't want to wait. He was too impatient. Right. So yeah, yeah he did, because he was too impatient for the knife, he makes it, takes it back and then just catapults to stardom because he had the eye Man. for detail and the execution. That's, and so, yeah, I just thought it was super cool. That, that's the best necessity is the mother of invention story. I think I've ever heard. That's pretty cool. That is the truth. Absolutely. Um, you know, he was known for, uh, as far as design cues, obviously the deep hollow grind was something that he was really into um, and that he really kind of pushed to the forefront. Deep hollow grind, micarta usage he kind of brought mm-hmm. that into yeah. vogue um and none of this stuff is you know he was the pioneer because it gets so murky with custom makers that there could have been a guy who made one knife this way before anybody else and nobody ever heard of him right so let's say what brought it to fame that's the use of micarta handles um it's the reintroduction of the tapered tang uh which he mm-hmm. actually took that knowledge from a 19th century technique and that's where he, he developed nice. the tapered tank. Nice. So Probably he, picked it up in the same junkyard he got the leaf spray yeah, exactly, out of. Exactly, you know? yeah. So he looked that's backwards awesome. to move forward, which I think I'm really big into. You guys, you know, if you follow any of our knives, we always like doing the more historical stuff and then looking backwards to move mm-hmm. forward. And he yeah. did that with the, the full tapered tank. Um, he also... And you guys will appreciate this. He introduced 154 CM and ATS 34 steel, and he brought it to popularity. You know, <laughs> those, are, those are good steels. I love and, them. And they're fantastic. Timeless at this point. I mean, I, the, even they, still they work. They hold up. Yeah. And and I I just I I see nothing wrong with those two steels whatsoever. I I you're hard pressed to break one. Mm-hmm. Short of gross negligence or abuse, you know what I mean? Yeah, I, a, a vice in a breaker bar. Yeah, exactly. Crazy is where you got to go. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, and they are metallurgically virtually identical, really, between 154CM. 154CM is the American counterpart to the Hitachi Japanese ATS-34. So if there was any nice. question on that. Nice. Is there any sort of chemical difference at all between the two, or is it the same formula? No, they're the same. I mean, they're... Really? Yeah, wow, I, mean, cool. they're, I mean, they're spot yeah. on. There might be a fraction of a percentage somewhere variant. And that, that's just only because of the mill. I or something, so. a yeah, variance, exactly. a variance yeah. in the middle. Yeah, somebody okay. accidentally knocked their soup can into the, into the cauldron. <laughs> there you go. This has yeah. 0.2% beef yeah. and vegetables. <laughs> <laughs> this, yeah, the beefy one's the American one. <laughs> so. uh, let's see. This is another interesting fact. He is said to be the first maker to produce what is known as a tactical knife. Which I find interesting wow. because Randall obviously mm-hmm. had the fighting knives in the 40s, mm-hmm. but I think that moniker is what he brought forward with his Dixon the, the Fighter. Knife. Well, the Dixon Fighter yeah. for sure, absolutely. Which visually is my favorite. Of course, the it's Big beautiful. Bear, you know, there's another fighter. Right. But, so I guess he was the uh, premier tactical knife maker. And of course, he designed for Gerber and 
um, a lot of other companies. I know you guys have an authorized copy of mm-hmm. the Drop Point Hunter, which we do. is his most famous so, model, most prolific uh, model. Oh yeah, no, and uh, give did give my father permission to use it. Yep. I mean, so we have we have the paperwork that says that we can use that design, and so so we create it as 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 true to form as possible. So the Bark River Classic Drop Point Hunter is. The loveless drop point hunter. It is. It is. It was drawn. So, it was actually drawn by Bob. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, so he, that's he, where we got the print. Yeah. Exactly. We got it from that drawing. Yep. So, and we have the drawing signed by him with, with the whole thing. I mean, Which is so, awesome. so it's like every time we do that knife, my heart skips a beat a little bit because it's just like living effing history. Oh, exactly. I, that's why right? like, I think my second grind and I had to, I was like, <laughs> all right, this is going to happen. Once I heard the story behind that, I was like, I have to have one of these. And I have one out of 3V, which is awesome. And I carry it all the time and I mm-hmm. love it. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, that's, he also, who else? So Schrade, Beretta, um, Cold Steel makes a reproduction. I'm not sure if theirs is authorized because I'm pretty sure they do the Big Bear and they do the OSS. But I don't right. know if they were authorized or licensed. I do know that they were for Schrade and Beretta. Uh, and if you guys ever find – I'm looking for one of the um, – either the Schrade or the Beretta. They do a dropped hunter. Typically, they were in maroon linen micarta yeah they're not worth a whole bunch i think they're 200 bucks or so yeah about 200 dollars. that's what they look like i, I want to hunt one down one of these days and just grab it because they are just a beautiful striking knife and i want to say those are from the 80s if i'm not mistaken yeah yeah back when well so, i'm not gonna say back when but yeah back back in the 80s um yeah it looks it looks like a, a pretty decent oh, reproduction. Pull up a picture of I, it? I think this is uh, i think this is the uh, the big bear of course, Cold Steel oh, called it. Yeah, that's Col- Cold Steel. Cold Steel bigger. called it the black black bear. Called yeah. it, yeah. Cold Steel called it the black bear because I'm good. I'm good at word things. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm a host on a podcast. Living, yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I so, think the Cold Steel uh, black bear. It, I mean, it's a big bear classic, and it's a hot knife. Like I think they're awesome. Yeah. I just don't know if it was officially licensed. Right. Right. Um, I don't know either. The Schrade dropped hunter. I don't know if you guys have seen those. I don't think that I have. I've seen a lot of custom makers oh, do drop. Oh my hunters. god, they're beautiful. Uh, yeah, like, everybody touches on the dropped hunter. I have haven't done one yet i don't know why i even skirted around it and did like a lawndale era utility oh it looks that looks like a class drop point hunter the schrader the schrader the schrader drop hunter is that the one in maroon um pulling up a cleaner picture hold on the dead, view dead image air. yep yeah. uh, dead air right there that one uh, no that's no? the caper that's the caper okay. yeah see the finger groove it's got that new york special oh you know what it style. does yeah okay i should have seen that sorry i, I, tur- I turned it around too fast because i'm like <laughs> i'm right the first try always Remember, guys, we're just guys who like to talk about knives with microphones in front of our faces. So I'm sorry if we go on a tangent a little bit, but and and, and we do make knives professionally too. So (laughs) so so we're we're batting a thousand right now. Um, Um, I actually don't think it's here. While you're looking that up, maybe try the Schrade dropped hunter. And while you're looking that up, I'm going to touch on this. You guys, uh, who's got a Haynes or Chilton manual in your garage? You know, you get you when you get a car, you go buy this manual, and it is a complete teardown and rebuild of every component in your automobile. And usually they're dog-eared, they have coffee stains on them, they're greasy and they're grimy, and they're coming yeah. out of their binding, and it's right next to your mechanics tools. Uh, if you've ever had one of those manuals and you know what I'm talking about, and you know what that looks like. The 1977 copy of How to Make Knives with Bob Loveless and Richard Barney looks like a Haynes manual. My personal copy, it is falling to pieces, and that is just a tome (laughs) that when I first – it's the only knife-making book I own. When I first started making knives, I had that book. I think I I got it off eBay, and I don't know. But anyways – it is so gross and so shop abused because I would reference it constantly. So if you guys want to see what goes into making a knife, whether you're a maker or a purchaser, get that book because it really gives you the soup to nuts on how to make a custom knife in several different methods. Right. 
Um, yeah, I, the only thing that I can find is the Shrade Pro Hunter, which is, which is this guy. No. 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 Yeah. Still no. Not it. No. Still not it. Yeah. So maybe, I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah, my my Google to, foo is lacking today. I'll have to look it up. <laughs> I'm coming. I'm coming off my other style. And uh, <laughs> all right. Well, we'll sum up the history then. Instead of just searching online while you guys wait anxiously. <laughs> um, Are you kidding me? That is the height pinnacle yeah. of entertainment <laughs> right now. Is dead air while we Google search things. You know, he was uh, obviously he was the the president of the Knife Makers Guild for a, I want to say a couple of years that he was president of the guild, um, and he was inducted into the Blade Magazine Cutlery Hall of Fame in 1985, which was well deserved. I, I think he's one of the the top makers in history, especially U.S. history, to ever be in the game, and that's why we were very honored to be able to feature him on today's history segment. Like I said before, we did lose Mr. Loveless on September 2nd of 2010 at Sad the day. ripe old age of 81 of lung cancer. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's the worst. 81. Oh, you know oh, what? 81 still pretty good. I, I just got in this discussion the other day, too, is uh, nobody gets out alive, right? Right. No one does. And I can guarantee you that what'll kill me is going to be something that I love. It's either going to be riding the motorcycle it's going to be the dust and particulates from knife making, maybe exacerbated a little bit by the smoking. Bob was a smoker <laughs> too. Or it's going to be my wife, Jenna, killing me because she's sick of me. Yeah, and so <laughs> either way, one of the top three things that I love, I know is what's going to be my end. And I would like to think that the thing that he loves so much and contributed so much to is probably what brought his very timely demise at 81. We all would have loved to see him live to 200 years old, but guess what? Just ain't in the cards, guys. So uh, just remember him when we come up this September. And uh, remember him every time you see a tapered tang, micarta handle, or deep hollow grind. Thank you so much for sitting through our history segment. We'll be back in a flash. And we're back. Welcome to the Tech Tips segment. Tech Tips? Behind the Blade podcast. <laughs> um, real quick correction, uh, or I don't know if you want to call it correction, but... A little bit of information. Todd was able to get back to us in a very timely manner from True Saber, and he gave the model on that knife we were talking about. Yes. The model of that knife that we were talking about is his N2, or just Necker 2. There you go. So so it's the N2 by True Saber, extremely comfortable, ergonomic, sharp as hell, and and very, very cool little neck knife. That's N as in November, right? N, N as in November, okay. phonetically speaking. All right, cool. Mm -hmm. um, this time, we've done a lot of tech tips uh, towards... Actually, we've bounced around a little bit, but we've done some for those in the trenches, and this one is more for you guys as customers. We wanted to kind of go into a couple segments, and this is the first one of the set, and what goes into knife production. Uh, as you guys know, Jim is... What is your What's your title? My title is, um, at Bark River Knives is the... Chief Operations Officer. Okay. So that's, that's all aspects of implementing and inventing new procedures for production, as well as as well as um organizing organizing all of the orders and and uh, making sure that the making sure that there's a lot of throughput. There you go. Through. So, so yeah. So he he knows every process that goes on at the Bark River plant, and we wanted to kind of fill you guys in a little bit as to what it takes to make. I guess you guys are considered semi-production. Some people call you guys semi-custom, but you go yep. call yourself semi-production. Yeah, I'm, I'm hesitant to use custom because there's a lot of annotation behind that that a lot of people that a lot of people question. 
and and so so saying semi production and kind of flipping it the other way kind of kind of eases a little bit but we do hand finish and hand grind all of our knives okay so we'll <clears throat> get to that in a second mm -hmm. and this is uh their method and basically i'm going to be interviewing jim so bear Yo. with us guys and we're going to go through this so that you can see what goes into a semi production knife Matt, and, Matt, this yeah. is our first on-location interview. This is it, yeah. We're on-location <laughs> interviewing. Um, we were just talking about that on break. <laughs> um, all right, so soup to nuts. Let's just bang through this real quick so you guys can understand all the work that goes into these knives before they get to your hot little hands. So I imagine you guys start off with a concept sketch, right? That's exactly what we do. We, we start off with a concept sketch. Um, I am very classic when it comes to this. Pencil to paper to ruler to French curve. There you go. That, I mean, I mean, 100%. I mean, I, I, I start with the size of the kind of a knife that I want. I start with a little idea like we talked about earlier. I adjust the proportions till it looks right. And then, you know, uh, for a regular production company, you don't have to do this, but I hand it to my father and go, is this good? Yeah, what do you think? Yeah. <laughs> is, is this good knife do? <laughs> so, so once you have your sketch up, I'm mm -hmm. assuming that you, and I've seen you do this, you run into the shop and make a functioning prototype. Is that right? That's exactly what I do. Yeah, okay. I, I run into the shop and make a functioning prototype. I get my, uh, I get a grinded blank, but um, basically, basically for the layman, what that is, is it's already just a preheat treated bar of steel already at a precision ground thickness. There you go. So I've got bars in eight inch 316s 200 and 250 okay you select that based on the model right and then you make a, a prototype and i make a prototype directly out of it okay i'll and take then... a copy of that sketch i'll transfer it via via blue via, via um engineers bluing die and, and a scribe and using those french curves again to trace all the lines out on that block and i'll take it right to the grinder and i'll start grinding okay so start grinding now, and dropping my holes now you have the now you have the uh prototype and i'm assuming in that process you make the handles and the guards and all that stuff too. oh yeah i do everything okay. by hand 100 I, I grab raw stock i i'll file i file the fit if i need to drill mill whatever i whatever i got to do to get that working prototype once i have that working prototype and and uh and it's it's totally finished it's right. it's it's viewable it looks like it's a functional a serv knife, serviceable right. knife um it goes right to the engineer for cat for cad okay and for then, CAD work. and they take all your measurements they take the model that you made the prototype you made and then they convert it to a uh, computer language so that they can be water jet i guess yeah. that's step one is that step yes. one yes step, step one step one is water jet after the engineering so the engineering just lays all the groundwork and foundation so the, the they take they take a dxf file which is just a basic cad print file and you guys all know what that is by now if you're if you're in this industry and you're listening to this podcast i guarantee that you guys already are in depth enough to know what that is right so so we take we take that file. It gets sent over to our water jet house, where we've already bought steel at a certain prescribed you know thickness that has already been shipped there that they've got waiting for us to use according to our designs. So that water jet path goes to him. He gives me a nest back, so I so I know how much steel I'm going to be using out of the pool. And I say, I'm like, okay, cut me out about 500 of those. Okay. And then he will just water jet out 500 blades. So now, you have, now you have the prototype to look at. You have the computer model, and you have the water jet blanks. Uh, and then what's your, what's your next step? So you have these raw, soft material blanks. Mm -hmm. Where do they go after that? It, it depends on the features of the knife. If it has a fuller, they go directly to us to send a surface grind because the best way to, cause we, cause again, we're a mid tech company. So we, we don't hand grind fullers. We give it to someone else to fixture and make sure that every fuller is exactly the same. Okay. So they get machined in. So the fullers so, get machined right, in. Right. 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 So, so that, but that can only happen until after, after everything's a, a perfect thickness okay. from surface grinding. But if it doesn't need that, it, I, I just have my water jet guy ship him directly to heat treat. Okay. And then, and then they'll, they'll heat treat it. So it's either, it's either a, a preliminary step depending on what features are there, or it just goes right to heat treat, but skipping it all, it goes to heat treat after that gotcha so and, and post heat treat 
it comes back to you guys. It comes back to us for personal inspection, Rockwell testing the the, the whole the whole thing just to make sure that the blades are you know what what we paid for, you know the the you know um the the right steel, the right uh, the the right hardness that we're looking for because sometimes people are wrong. Sometimes sometimes people are off. The we, wrong sheet gets grabbed oh, yeah. off a shelf or something. Oh yeah yeah, yeah absolutely. So because it happens, so you have to double check that stuff. So once it comes in um, and inspects it and it clears it, or we pull out the blades that are bad or whatever, we just hang on to it. It goes out from there to surface grind if it didn't get surface ground before. What's the point of surface grinding? The point of surface grinding is um, is obviously obviously you know the answer to this question. Oh yeah, but, of course. But, but not everybody but listening, w- right? So that's but what when you buy question. steel, I guarantee you that if you if you paid for precision ground stock, you I don't want to say that it's not wise to do that. And I'm definitely not going to use the words, you're a fool to do that. Well, it depends. Now, I'm I'm going to stop you right there. Just real quick, uh, as a maker, um, there are times where we do buy precision ground stock because as a custom maker, we're making normally like cpm steels just for you guys who have ever been curious about this cpm steels come in three foot lengths okay well well uh, what, uh, what i was talking about isn't specific to custom makers so as that's a, a different production that, as a production okay. company okay yeah, yeah. That's, i just no, wanted no, to clarify that because sometimes no, we buy precision ground stock no no, no, no i don't want to poo poo on the yeah, on custom so, guys yeah. no it's a different mentality yeah. custom knives are a different mentality different set of circumstances but 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 if you buy precision ground stock for a production company and a production model, you're overpaying for steel. Right. Because you should just buy the raw steel in its wavy, completely it unkempt, mill skin right. thickness, and then grind it down. I guarantee you it's cheaper. And then you have more control over the specs. Right. So so what we do is from there it goes to surface grind, and then we, we, we give our surface grinder a, a tolerance of... Plus zero, minus two thousands. There you go. That's pretty tight tolerances, and, guys. I and mean, that's it's, crazy. It's yeah. pretty tight tolerances, and we and and once it goes to them, they get they get sent to another grindhouse. What um, do they do at that grindhouse? At that grindhouse, they put in a preliminary bevel for us to grind. So what it does is it they so so if you have your your bar that's just straight stock blank, they put in the bevels for us and leave about a fifty thousands flat edge for us. Now okay. we now we convex all of our blades. Right. The fifty thousands flat edge to the top of the grind that we specify via a grind print that we develop and that we send to the grindhouse. So they're they're making something according to us. They're just not like doing whatever they want. So they they grind in the bevels to your specification to make right. sure there's enough meat there for you to convex. Right. From okay. there, they come back to us, and then and then it goes through prep and assembly, and then the handles go on and everything. And th- that's that's another line, by the way. The entire handle thing is a different. Is right. A different, so is all right. Line. So let's jump over to the handles. Sure. And so uh, obviously, you guys do a lot of woods, a lot of micartas, a yep. lot of uh, different acrylics and stuff like yep. that. Acrylics, natural materials, and so woods. off of your prototype that you had built in the beginning. Remember mm-hmm. that was step one. You yep. sketch to a three D prototype. Off that prototype, the engineers then design the handle scales yes also right and then yes. you guys machine those right? yeah they, they take they uh well, we're actually able to 3d an entire shape for a handle scale so so off of the print that they generate they'll generate fixture plates for um with with hole patterns for the for for um for the handles that that we want to produce for that for that model okay there they'll 3d out a model of a left and right scale that goes on there so when we get the blade back um and afterwards unmilling the handles you can just put them on and they're 80 percent done right you know they're they're totally together, and then that's where the handwork. You know, just knowing your operation a little bit, sure, uh, and seeing that, that's where the handwork really comes in. So not only are, are you guys uh, grinding the blades, 
you know, mm-hmm. the edges right. and the bevels and master bevels and the swedges and everything on the blades. But you're also kind of cleaning up the tool marks from yep. the handles from, and all yep, that. from the mill. And then we're mating it to the spine. We're cleaning up the spine, making sure everything's congruent and totally smooth okay. through the whole thing. So we're putting, we're putting a 2,000 grit finish. So it's going from mill marks and uneven edges and raw steel on, on the edges just, that are just water jet paths to totally smooth 2,000 grit finish white mirror polish there you go Perfect. on 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 the handles and that is and that is done by hand yep all buffed and everything i mean i mean like matt you've seen it i've got five machines just on one side of the building that's just nothing but hafting guys i've got four hafting guys one at each step except for the last guy who takes care of the last two steps because it goes so fast gotcha and then i've got buffers that polish it the rest of the yeah, way they run the gamut in different grits and right. everything so yeah so that's pretty cool so now you have a finished knife but it is in the sterile state yeah, it's, it's so it's no totally markings dull. or anything right. on it, and then it goes to it what's go, next? Step? Well, after after the handle's totally finished, and this is a little bit backwards for, and some of you custom guys are going to balk at this, but I totally understand why the blade has not been ground at this point. Oh, that's right. right. You guys do hafting before right. the blade work. Right, we're you could say yeah, we've been called arrogant for it before. You, you're telling me you're putting all this work. What happens if one of your grinding guys screws up all the blades? I'm like, well, then we either train him better or get rid of him and get somebody else. Right. I mean, and that's that's uh, that's just the, the hard truth of it. But our grinding guys are awesome. They never... Well, let's, okay, I can't say never. They, will, they get it about 99% right all the time. All the time. They get it 99% 60% right. of the time it works every time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, but their, but their level of success is good enough that we can entire, we can base an entire business model on it. Right. And, it and, and the way we teach and the way I grind and the way I teach uh, fosters that. So we, so from there, after the handle's totally finished, that's a guard, a guard, everything's made it together, everything's mirror polished. Um, it goes right over to grinding side and then they just start convexing it. So they'll, they'll, do a, they'll do a master bevel all in the slack. Which is, which is, again, very unique to our style. They'll do, do a master bevel on the slack to making sure the bevel's even both sides so the edge is even as it goes down the thing. And then from the top of the grind to the top of that bevel, they just start removing steel. To get that to, Bill Moran-style appleseed grind. Right, to get Perfect. that appleseed kind of a grind. Mm-hmm. So they get it really, really close. So another misconception about how we do it is that is that we never we don't actually grind to a zero convex. We get about 99.9% of the way, but we never actually see a burr rise. Because it was, the only time we see a burr rise is when we center the edge, when we put that master bevel on, off of a 50,000 edge. And then you go to match that and, and get as close right, to it without... Right, right exactly. And yeah. then we go to match that and get as close to it as possible. And then from there, the blade, the, the blade, and the blades are kept cool the whole time. I got water buckets in between each one of the machines. Every one of my guys knows what they're doing. And you guys, yep. uh, and this is an important thing because, I mean, this has come up, and look, we've made it very clear from the beginning of this podcast, this isn't the vehement knives Bark River show. No. But I thought this was really interesting, and I thought it was a worthwhile uh, um, interview to do so you guys could kind of peek behind the scenes if you've mm-hmm. never attended a grind in. But... The fact of the matter is there is a little bit of guff out there about um, grinding hardened blades or uh, overheating on the blade, and it's science, guys. So let's let's break into this a little bit. These guys convex on the slack, which means there is no mm-hmm. platen behind the belt to generate the massive heat that comes up when you grind on a platen. Uh, the wheel rotates, obviously, so the wheel is constantly kind of cooling itself, and obviously the belts rotate. But and there's airspace underneath. There is. And I'm not saying that there's no friction or anything, right. but there is airspace underneath, as Jim just pointed out, underneath that belt, and that allows you to, to actually run faster and still stay cool. And I've witnessed Correct. this with my own eyes and my own fingers and my own hands. Right. And I thought that was really interesting because I had some – 
um, I was a little apprehensive about it myself. I mean, I grind all our blades soft, uh, you mm-hmm. know, in the sure. yield state. Yeah. And I was like, wow, you guys take a heat-treated blade and grind it. And after seeing it and after having my hands on it, I was like, oh, no kidding. Yeah, so, it works. So, I mean, it's just you got the friction of the belt, but there's no sink behind it to generate the heat. And because they grind blade edge 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 into the edge wheel. into the wheel yep. so to speak or so belt. as the yeah. belt is traveling towards you the edge is pointing away from you and because of that that heat that thermal effect that dissipation of heat is actually moving towards the spine whereas if you were to do it the other way that heat would be running to the thinnest part of the knife and that Correct. would cook the edge right so, and 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 to everybody who grinds that way, that has that has gotten cooked edges and says that, well, I've ground my I've ground my knives that way, and I've got nothing but blue spots all over my blade. Right. Well, that's that's why. Yeah. I mean, I mean, you're 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 not dipping it enough, and you're grinding the wrong way into the belt. You're yeah. drawing heat to the thinnest point of the knife. Right. So yeah, you have blue spots. And so okay, so now you guys have a bevel in your I don't want to say proprietary, but your signature style yeah signature style is a really good way to describe that and so you have a bevel in your signature style you have a beautifully buffed and polished handle whatever material that is what's the next phase after that we go to the blade polishing and and that's where we put our terminal edge on okay so so we've got we've got buffers that are that are loose and have a little that have a little bit of a compound compound on them right they have a little bit of compound on them um, and, and we actually, that's where we bring up a burr. It's very, very light touch and it's dipping, it's dipping the whole time. And, and we have, we have a hand on the blade at all times that if it even starts to get like lukewarm, they're instructed to dip it. And the guys, I explained it extremely well to all these guys. They know what they're doing. Um, we raise a burr on these, on these wheels and then we burnish it off with just a muslin wheel with some black compound on it. The same black compound, by the way, that you guys buy when when you buy a bar or anybody else's black compound, by yeah. the way, because 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 you're you're varying within about 500 points of grit, you know, between everybody's compound, from what I understand. And maybe I'm wrong on that. And if I am, go ahead and correct me. I'm totally open to new ideas and and uh, and, and new information. But as far as I know, everything's within 15 to 2500 grit. There you go. And it, it, within that. So so it's just black compound on that loose on that on that on that stitched muslin wheel and we burnish that burr off and then we're left with an edge. Now you have a sharp knife. It's it's razor sharp. That's hafted. Yeah. What's next? It's hafted. Um the the blade is satined at that point okay. to just totally even out. Um if it has a guard, the top of the guard is repolished on a very okay. thin wheel with some with some green compound. And and then from there it goes to cleaning and etching, etching right. and boxing and invoicing and cataloging. And so and etching is where they put the maker's mark on. Correct. Yeah. Okay. I'm so, yeah. Yeah. I gloss over that because I live it every day. I right. Never yeah. Think, exactly. Yeah. I never <laughs> think to, to go back and and and, uh, and talk about those things. But but uh, yeah, it's an it's a it's a it's an electrochemical acid etch. Which is, uh, I mean, it's the same thing we use. I think a lot of makers, there's a lot of kits out there that you can either build or buy or whatever it is to be yeah. able to do this. And that is an industry standard, I think, in, in most cases well, for it, those it, who don't use laser. It's either that or pay 10 times as much for a laser. Right. You know, or or, uh, or one of those fiber optic lasers. I think it depends on your production capacity, too. If you're Absolute, doing hundreds absolutely. of thousands of blades annually, you know what I mean? I Like, a lot of people use laser. Sure. Uh, and for custom makers, we love uh, electrochemical etching. Uh, for you guys, the semi-production makers, mm-hmm. uh, you guys obviously love electrochemical. Well, it, it's it's five seconds a knife versus two minutes a knife, and it doesn't strain the knife in nope. any way. And that was a, yep. going back to our history segment. You know, Loveless was really adamantly opposed to the Randall style of stamping your maker's mark into the blade because of the concern for stress. Sure. Now there, are, I can tell you, maybe in a laboratory test, this may have an effect, but I can tell you there. are plenty of makers out there who stamp their maker's mark into their blades and i have yet to see one break 
at the maker's mark. No, I so, I mean, you'd be yeah. hard-pressed to, like, take a Lon Humphrey knife and break it at the maker's mark. I don't care how deep he pounds that no. thing in. Now, me, in the vein of, of Loveless, I respect that, and I go to it. But, I mean, I think this is... Uh, like uh, I think it's it's academic. I used to have a boss that would say right. that. he goes, "This is academic." It's so, academic. I mean, but, like it doesn't have a practical application to the, what we're talking about. Exactly, a real world. And so, so. In, in the real world, I it doesn't make a difference. But you guys use electrochemical yep. etching that does not put any extra strain on the blade. No, not at not all. That it's, it's, a, it's a mark. It does, but yeah. Well, no, I mean, just, we yeah, can we there. can set ours to eat away the steel. But it, but it's not a but it's not an impression, and it doesn't change the grain. Right. Yeah. Right. So so it's um. Like uh, when we do the Skagel knives, we can actually put a setting on so that it eats the steel away to, be, to look a like deep, a stamp. Yeah, you have a deep mark. Right, but it's actually just vaporized. Right. Yes, away. I mean, so um. So that's cool. So so I actually have seen blades broken at maker's marks. Have you really? I have old old marbles blades that were never built because they were heat treated improperly. Oh, okay. They were never normalized after stamping. Oh, gotcha. So and, and that's the magic, right? That's the magic. Stamp it normalize it which evens out all the crap you just did to it yep and then he treated it like you normally would and then you're fine because because now it's instead of it being an impression and the grains all fluctuated around it now everything's brought back out evenly or as even as it can be and you and you gain most of that strength back so there you go guys and <clears> i'm <throat> sure that's something that i just mentioned so, lon i'm sure that's something that he does because i mean his knives are tanks you know oh yeah I mean? like, no, no, just brutally I've, tough. I've, I've never yeah. seen a lon humphrey knife broken no never yeah. not once and i know his customers are brutal on it, so, <laughs> they, well, but yeah and he cool. encourages that too yeah, he, yeah, yeah totally. absolutely he's like yeah use the crap out of them Yep. So and so okay, so now you have the knife is marked, it's sharpened, it's all cleaned up, all the compound and everything is cleaned off of them and then they get boxed up and then they get sent they off get, to the dealer. Right, they get boxed up cuz we make to order, so we receive all uh -huh. of orders beforehand, all the handle material is is organized in assembly beforehand. It's machined, it's machined, batched, already organized. Um by the time it gets to assembly again, it's assembled, batched and organized and then it goes through the shop, which is just like a at this point, it's almost like a whirlwind of action. Right. But it's very organized, just step one, step two, step three, all the way down. It goes through the churn. It comes out organized and batched because everybody everybody keeps the orders together. And then, it, again, etching, batched, and it, and it gets and it gets uh, the order gets put together, batched. Yep, there you go. And, and then and, it's out the door. And then it's out the door to, to whoever's ordering it. Very cool. Yeah. So there you go, guys. There is the insight into what goes into every single knife that you guys get from a... We'll, again, we'll go back to the semi-production manufacturing state and Absolutely. a little inside look. So, so I hope you guys appreciate that because it's kind of cool to peek behind the curtain and see what goes into these knives that are so revered. So if there's any custom makers out there that that feel free, feel free to, 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 to listen to this maybe a couple of times and get an idea, you know, because there's in my in my mind, there's nothing wrong with getting like maybe 10 or 12 blades of something water jet. Especially if it's a if it's, if it's one of your popular models, right? Get it water jet, get it surface ground, and then do some basic work to it, and still do your custom stuff on the side. Just something to speed you up. Um, if if that helps in, in any form, awesome. I I did my job, and that'll that'll make me feel that'll make me feel amazing. So definitely let me know if you do. You pick up a good idea or something. Yeah, it's a really good point because mm -hmm. I mean there there is a there's a point where sole authorship is very important to the build and i am totally comfortable look this is our show i can say what i want but i'm totally comfortable with this opinion in that sole authorship is most important on art knives and there are some very skilled art knife makers out there i mean i will go back to uh the late great 
Buster Warensky. Sure. His wife, yeah. Julie Warensky. Yeah. Uh, I mean, just amazing, amazing art oh knife makers. God. And he made functional knives, too, but he was really renowned for his art daggers and stuff like that. Oh, they that. looked awesome, though. I mean, they, oh. Totally. So, yeah. soul authorship is important in a work of art. If you are a knife maker that is making knives, there I don't think there is any shame. And I wish I would take my own advice. I water jet <laughs> so little. I mean, really, I do. But I don't think there's any shame in having some knives water jet, even if they are looking, so that you could form them into something useful later and just save that that belt time, man. You know, and well, get it done. And we've done time. that. We've done that. In an attempt to save money, we'll we'll actually like. If, if we only need 400 knives, but we have enough steel to do 500, and we don't have another design to throw on the end of that plate, we'll just say, go ahead and cut the 500, and then we'll keep the extra 100 blades. Cut them into something entirely new later. Totally. And then sell a new model. Right. I mean, it happens. It happens at maybe maybe once a year. It used to happen all the time. Right. Honestly, it used to happen when we first started Bark River. It'd be like, Dad would order 500 blades, and we'd only sell 250, and then we have well, to Well, you guys are model. trying to be super creative at that point. You know what I mean? Right, so right, right. It's like, and, right. and now you guys are pretty established. Yeah, we're a little bit more established than we used to be, but there's nothing wrong with doing something like that. I mean, because there's always another knife inside of a knife. No, and if you guys have differing opinions, we'd love to hear about that. But 100%. Be, yeah, and it, this is, like I said, this is for you guys as much as it is for us. So uh, get some dialogue going on amongst yourselves and, and feed it back to us. We'd love to hear your opinions on it. But, Jim, I want to thank you for giving us a little bit of insight into that. No problem, man. Anytime. And, uh, yeah, thank you guys for sitting through this. And we'll be right back with some Q&A. Thank you. What's happening, gang? Matt here. Jim and I have a quick favor to ask of you. As some of you may know, we do this on our free time and completely out of pocket. We've been receiving some feedback as we've been growing, and there is an obvious need to increase our production quality. The only way to do that is through sponsorship. That's what keeps the lights on. So we would love if you guys would be so kind as to share and subscribe, whether it be on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, or wherever you stream us from. We need those subscriptions so that we can prove to our sponsors that we reach who they want to talk to directly. When we reach 100 subscribers, we, Jim and I are going to come out of pocket once again and offer a giveaway. And that's, what do you guys expect from behind the blade? Nothing but a knife, right? So we have a knife selected. We'll be showing you guys. Please click that subscribe button. Please tell your friends about us so that we can keep bringing you the information that we love so dearly. And we're back. Welcome back to the Q and A's. Q and A behind the blade podcast. Behind <laughs> the blade podcast. These uh, these were emails sent in to us um, at our email address, which is info at behindthebladepodcast.com. Yep, and uh, I'm going to be pretty frank with you guys right now. Uh, honesty is the best policy. Turns out the email address wasn't nearly as active as the Facebook post. So we're going to amend our statement and telling you guys to stop uh, messaging on there. And we're going to say <laughs> just go ahead and comment whenever we put up the question box. Yep. Um, if it's more convenient to email, we'll be accepting those too. But to be honest, uh, without your guys' interaction, we don't need these microphones. We could just talk about this <laughs> stuff on our own. So... <laughs> Let's uh, uh, let's open it back up, make it a little bit more convenient for you guys and maybe a little bit less convenient for us. But uh, we'll throw up the question box and you can either comment on that on Behind the Blade podcast on Facebook or you can email us, whichever you prefer, because we'd love to hear what you guys have. So what do we have? What is our first Q&A today, Jim? From Doug Lund. It has always been my understanding that the term rat tail tang came from the practice of welding on a piece of threaded rod to a blade to form a tang. The parentheses, uh, 
parenthesis, the threaded rod making for an easy attachment of a pommel nut and the appearance without the handle in place brings to mind a rat's tail. I don't recall where I heard this from, but I know it was many years ago, perhaps the mid-70s. I've seen really cheap production knives used method in my, and it's my opinion that's where the phobia around hidden tanks come from. Can you clear up the confusion, or barring that, entertain us with stories of knife tanks? I'm sorry, this is not an entertainment program, so no. Next question. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah no, uh, no, you're totally right. I, uh, when you when you say that, as soon as you say rat tail tang, it takes me back to, I would say probably the '90s you know, when I was a kid, and when we would look at knives and we'd be like, immediately turn your nose up at rat tail tang. I mean, it has a negative connotation. Oh yeah, you look like a rat. It's a rat. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, so. <laughs> so what good things come of you know? Um, Jim, we were talking about this at break. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I think you hit the nail on the head. Initially, I believe they were forged in yeah. and drawn out to a taper similar to the tang you would find on like a hand file, yeah. but elongated, right? Right, right, right. They would, they would, you would draw the blade first, and then, and usually, um, usually just just in forging, you would end up with a chunk of steel that you're holding onto with your tongs, and then you'd you'd heat that part up and start drawing that out. What you'd end up with is you'd end up with uh, basically an isosceles triangle of just what look would look like a rat tail, where it starts thick by the tang or the ricasso of the blade and would draw to a fine point. And sometimes those were either threaded or even just peened over the pommel, right? Right. I mean, they'd be run yes. through and then peened over. <clears throat> Absolutely. Or, or just drawn really thin and then ground back and then peened over or adjusted after that to, to make work. And later, from about the 70s, because uh, so Doug, you're totally on, um, on the mark um, as far as I know, um, people started just like water jetting and stamping out just basic blade shapes with instead of instead of a tang, you'd see you'd see a notch or a V shape. Right. And then people would braze or weld on threaded rod or another piece of excuse me, another piece of steel onto it. Um and then and then you'd actually have a weak point. And this is in, in the, the interest of material conservation, yeah. I'm assuming, at yeah. that point. If it's not being forged out, and you know what I mean? Like, right. you're really just trying to save blade steel material because right, right. you buy it by the pound and replace it with something that can be purchased from an industrial supplier or hardware right. store. Right, right. You go down to the hardware store and you buy some just welding steel, and then that's your tang that you weld onto your blade steel. Right. So, and of course, that creates a little bit of a weak point versus just making the whole thing out of proper steel. Oh, it, is, it is absolutely not the strongest or most sound method of knife construction. And, and for yeah. you guys that are doing rat tail method um i'm not going to say shame on you but there are better ways to do it and so i encourage it now we have gotten a lot of questions leading to this conversation so we're going to start with the rat tail but let's move on to hidden tangs as a whole and dispel any myths that come along with that you guys do a lot of hidden tangs we do a lot of hidden i do a few hidden tangs Mm -hmm. um if it's a quality made knife do not fear anything that isn't exclusively full tang because to be quite honest like on our 101ers and i don't mean to talk about our stuff too much but on our 101ers they're quarter inch 01 steel and the tang on that i want to say is five eighths by quarter by full length of the handle now at the end we have welded in a little piece of all thread but the pommel of the knife actually sits flush against the tang and the little portion of thread is only to affix the pommel by some method, whether it's threaded through the pommel or with a tang nut or whatever mm-hmm. it is. So any hidden tang knife that we do, and I think this holds true for, I mean, look, it's as a custom maker, it's actually easier to do it this way, and you're stepping over a dollar to pick up a dime by shorting your tang, and you're asking for a warranty issue if you're selling hard-use knives. Totally. So any respectable maker is probably running 
full blade thickness, maximum width that will clear whatever their handle material is without blowing through it, whether it be micarta, wood, leathers, you know, stack leather washers, whatever it is. They're probably putting as much tang in there as possible. And if they're not, you're going to feel it immediately because yeah. you'll lose that substantial balance point. Oh, yeah. You'll totally. have that, that feel to it. You'll be like, I feel like there's nothing in this handle. It feels like there's nothing to it because right. it's just a piece of leather at that point. Right, right, right. right. It's just garbage at that point. Um, uh, We do the same thing with the blackjacks. If you, if you buy a blackjack knife, it it goes all the way to the back end of the pommel where you can look at the pommel and there's a little fastener that holds everything together and the center of that fastener is the tang of the knife. Absolutely. So, so we've got full thickness. So like I think our think blackjacks are probably our thinnest tangs at 5 sixteenths wide by quarter inch by the entire length of the handle. Which there's and, more steel in that. I mean, if you were to actually flatten that amount of steel out, there's more steel in that than the entire well, I wouldn't say the entire blade of this Randall I'm looking at, but there's a significant amount. You could actually forge that tang into a functioning knife on its own. There's that much material there. Yeah, just to it's, put that it's, to it's totally true. It's totally yeah. true. Same thing, same thing with these blackjacks that we make. And we don't weld on a thread in that one. We actually water jet just a smaller section of rectangle that gets in, gets into a fixture, goes on a lathe, and gets spun down to the right post size, which and is 190, threaded, right. and then threaded. So we've got live threads that are integral in the blade to the yeah to the tang itself the and tang. the pommel is resting against that people say oh stick tang well i mean it's okay yeah i guess if you want to call it that but i mean they're they're actually really robust and really thick and really tough yeah so i i i am totally comfortable dispelling the myth that a now i'm not going to speak for everybody i'm not going to speak for every pakistani solicitor that's trying to sell you melted down chevy <laughs> bumpers yeah but what i am going to say is that any respectable maker that does a hidden tang knife i mean look at their warranty look at whatever you want to but they're going to run it the full length of the handle and there will be a threaded portion as a interface for fastening Correct. and that's it it's not all thread run through the handle no. and if you do have something like that it's going to be low quality and to be quite frank you can pick up I guarantee you can pick up any one of your knives. You can pick up any one of my knives. You can pick up any respectable knife maker's hidden tang knives. You can grab it by the handle and try to bend it. I dare oh, you. Go for it. And so yeah. it, it, if you were able to kink a blackjack or a Bark River whatever or a vehement whatever or anybody's, if you were able to kink that, I would eat my hat. And yeah. so if it is all thread, you're going to be able to bend it, and you'll watch the leather washer separate. Yeah, that never, never in the history of me making knives – since I was 13, making knives like on a, on a production professional level, have I ever seen a hidden tang handle, one of ours, break at the tang? Right. Yeah, ever. It, just, it just doesn't happen. Never. Not but, once ever. And, so, and, I, and I'm, not, I'm not just saying that either. I can honestly say, oh, never seen oh, it. Hang on. Let's, never seen uh, it. Hang on. Here's one. Here's one. Let's look at K-Bar. Okay. K-Bar's yeah. hidden tang, right? Yeah. And so they have stacked leather washers. Their blades are like five thirty seconds thick. Oh, that's right. It's yeah. a thin They're blade. Thin. You ever see somebody with a bent K-Bar handle? You ever. know what I mean? Yeah, and so it just no. I've seen the blades bent. I've seen everything else happen to them because people are so brutal on these knives, and they are tough knives for what they are. I mean, they're amazing knives for what they are. But the fact of the matter is, you're talking five thirty seconds of an inch. We're talking quarter inch on our models. Yeah. But at five thirty seconds, I cannot take a K bar and bend it, bend the handle in half. Yeah. No, so I, I don't know what knives people are talking about when they when they say that they don't trust hidden tang knives. I think it's mythology. I think it's yeah. the same mythology <clears throat> that follows uh, stainless steel. Stainless steel doesn't hold as good an edge as ten ninety five. You know what I mean? It's, 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 I hate to say that it's inexperienced and not being informed, but 
it's inexperience and not being informed. It is. It's in the lore, nicest possible way. It's lore but, that was passed on by family members who were revered and had a working knowledge of some things, and in other ones, they filled in the gaps with their own editorials. And so, that's you know, let's, mm-hmm. let's just push the education train. Let's see what the facts are, and let's see what the practical experience is, and then use that to as a barometer for what works and what doesn't Correct. work. And so, I mean, that's my take on that. Right. Personal experience. There you go. Next question. All right. I got I got this one on mine. Uh, this comes from Dan Jake Jacquet. I hope I am getting your last name right. I'm sure you will tell me at Blade Show in June. Um, <laughs> hey, guys. Love the podcast. Looking forward to meeting you at Blade Show. Last week, you touched on your favorite steels. My question is, what are your favorite and least favorite handle materials to work with? Thanks. I will be glad to answer this. That is me triumphantly throwing <laughs> my phone down. <laughs> Matt, tell me what you like to work with. I love my Carta. I just <laughs> friggin' love it. Like, I love my Carta. G10 is okay. Um, I don't think it's as good. These are the Q&As. I'm, I'll give you some real-world experience. Okay, so I was doing a Skinner. Um, this was a number of years ago, and I'm on the buffer trying to buff the handles on this. Um, it was an ATS-34 Skinner with black micarta scales and, like, a nickel silver guard. Mm-hmm. And I'm on the buffer. It's like 3,400 RPMs or something like right. that. Right. And it had kind of a, I don't know, it's like a weird choil, but not a round choil. It was like a squared off choil in front of the guard. And I was trying to buff that guard solder joint. And it ripped the knife out of my hands and slung it down into the concrete. Oh. And it just smashed it. And this thing was beautifully polished. It was like the last thing before part marking. <laughs> oh, I look no. at the ground. And I'm worried because the (laughs) one side is still showing, and I only can figure that it landed peanut butter side down, and the devastation is on the side. (laughs) Oh, no. And Uh I pick it up, and I look at it, and yes, you could tell where it hit the concrete. There was a scuff. And I was actually able to buff the scuff out. I never had to take it back to a belt or anything like that. And I said, my Carta is for me. Now, (laughs) to counter that, I was doing a Paragon with G10. It was Blaze Orange. I'll never forget this. Blaze Orange G10. And it was on the photo booth. And the photo booth at that time had these two metal doors that opened up so I could access photo props underneath. Well, the knife had a lanyard with a lanyard loop knot, and it was getting ready for photographs. It's a completed knife with orange G10, texture G10 on it. And that G that lanyard was hanging down, and it snagged on the door when I opened it. Now, we're talking a table that's roughly about, I don't know, 36 to 42 inches off the deck. Right. And I opened that door, and it snagged the lanyard, and it pulled the knife off. Not at 3,400 RPMs, under no force other than its own natural gravity, <laughs> and the thing fell down and blew out the corner of the, on the tang. Oh, no. And I was like, oh, come on. This <laughs> knife was done. I had to remake the entire handle. So I do like G10. I do use it. There is a, a time and a way to mitigate that issue by the way it sits against the corners and stuff like that. But I do not find G10 to be as tough as micarta. So I, in order of what I like, I like my Carta, and in second place, I like G10. Beyond that, I hate it. Carbon fiber. You guys want to know why you pay so much for carbon fiber handles? Number one, because it's expensive. It yep. costs a fortune Just to buy as raw right material. Off the bat. Right mean, off the bat. Unbelievable. Oh, yeah. I had, a, I had a 24 by 24 piece of carbon fiber come in an eighth inch. It's $350. Yeah, so just do the math on that. I mean, it's ridiculous. Yeah. Um, so 
carbon fiber, the other issue with carbon fiber is it is a disgusting mess to work. Oh, my God. It's terrible, and it turns everything black, and it makes you itchy. It's you know, super fine dust, too. I mean, it's, I, not just, it's not just like a, like a normal micarta dust like, you, like you'll see sitting on. It's graphite or something. It, it, you know it's, I mean? it's, it's like graphite. You've yeah. never worked with graphite before, and that's a great way to put it is that it is just like this mist of dust, and it's nasty. It's hard on your body. It's um, really, really hard on belts. It, it loads belts up like that yeah. and i mean it just turns them into garbage very quickly um so i i do not like carbon fiber i know a lot of people like the weight and strength properties of it they like the visual appeal of it but as far as working i can't stand it um beyond that it just goes into a list of handles that i hate and so <laughs> <laughs> he has a hate um, list okay <laughs> all right so carbon fiber is my least hated uh moving into that would be woods which actually I like woods. I, they're mm -hmm. easy to work. I think they're beautiful. Uh, in my opinion, I know you guys do a lot mm -hmm. of woods. In my opinion, woods are a warranty waiting to happen. Uh, and so I, the customers love them. They finish out well. They feel nice as a company and as a maker. I don't like woods because I have concerns of returns. Yep. And so that's the only reason I don't like wood. Uh, you could get into Cocobolo being. Uh, I don't want to say toxic, but uh, some people have a very adverse. It's an allergen. Yeah, yeah. The, yeah an allergen. Yeah, there you it's go. An allergen. They have yeah. an adverse reaction to it. Um, so some of the woods, and I've worked exotic woods. I, look, I used to uh, work at a um, martial arts training weapons manufacturer, and so we did a lot of bokens and nunchakus and eskrima sticks, arnie sticks, whatever you want to call them, um, bow staffs. We did all those out of Ipe and Ligdon Vite and, and – uh, Babinga, Wenge, which was really splintery. Um, <laughs> but so all these woods, you know, they can burn your nostrils or whatever, but mm -hmm. they're really tough. And, and so I'm not talking trash. See, I didn't cuss again. You like that? Um, I'm not talking <laughs> trash on the woods. I just don't like them from a maker standpoint because I don't want to have to deal with the returns on a high-end custom knife because the handle shrunk when I shipped it from humid Michigan to arid Arizona. You know what I mean? So that's just me. Um, mm -hmm. Beyond that, Let's get into the most hated, and uh, it's acrylics, guys. It's acrylics. <laughs> uh, and I, yeah, look, yeah, I, I, they're impossible <laughs> to work without blowing them out, catching them on fire. I mean, you just, they're just. Ugh, I hate working acrylics. I hate being <laughs> at a grinding when people are like, "Hey, will you half this acrylic knife?" And you smell like a nail salon. You know what I mean? Because it's <laughs> By the time in the you're air. Done. Yeah, it's <laughs> so. There you go. That's it. In a nutshell, Jim, what are your favorite? and least favorite handle materials. So, so um, they actually echo yours pretty, pretty closely. Pretty closely. I like Micarta. Yep. It's fast. It polishes up awesome. It's really easy to work with. It's and indestructible. It's and it's indestructible. It doesn't change. You can put it through a dishwasher. I mean, not that I would ever do that, but, but, but there's nothing wrong with the Micarta once it's done with the process. Right. It is just nice and strong, and the color stays, and it's beautiful, and it looks really good, no matter what material you use. Age as well. Age as well. Yep. Yeah, no, totally. After that, I think comes everything else I just kind of hate. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> so, so, I mean, and one thing to add to Matt's argument about black carbon fiber and why it's so expensive. One, it's expensive from the manufacturer for us to get. Our cost is go, goes through the roof, like, like Matt said, just to reiterate. Number two... Different carbon fiber manufacturers, not all of them are the same. You have garbage out there. You have garbage carbon fiber manufacturers. Inclusions, delamination. In, in, right. Yeah. Inclusions, delaminations, the patterns, not even different patterns because they were just short on fiber and they thought they could get away with a different pattern in the middle of the material. You know, and, and they just like, 
are just like cheap grindhouse carbon fiber makers who just could afford the who could afford the press. I mean, I'm, of course, I'm not going to name any names at all whatsoever. But if but we'll get carbon fiber that looks totally cool on the top, totally smooth, not a pockmark in it, and then we'll mill handles out of it, and it'll still look okay. And then we'll haft it after and it it's looks been like assembled. Edward James almost his face. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> yeah, totally. Every time. And then, and then, or or we'll get something, and then we won't see like the one pockmark that's in the back corner. And it'll then at that point go to the finniest mm, monkey liquor customer, customer, yeah, pickiest oh. customer on earth because of that little tiny. Yep. One sixty-fourth little pinhole, yep. and it's like this is the biggest piece of garbage knife I've ever had in my life. I can't believe you sent it out hole. like this. Can't yeah. believe you sent it out like that. And and I'm just like, <sighs> so not only that, now we just paid for the shipping there, the shipping back, the handle material, the machining time, the labor that went into it, and now we got to do it again right. because and uh, hope there's no pinhole and, and hope there's no yeah. pinholes because carbon fiber is an absolute pain. In the batoks, yeah, <laughs> to work Batox. with. I mean, so so we have to do it all over again. Then, I mean, so by the time we're done, it ends up costing us like literally thousands of dollars, because because not all carbon fiber manufacturers put the same amount of quality right. in in their product. No problems whatsoever, and some are terrible. All problems all the time. Right. So so I just wanted to reiterate that that if I could never use carbon fiber again ever, that's why. There you go. Oh, so, I have I have one more. Oh, I have one more. All right. This is a Let's this is a, a neutral one. Okay. I don't hate it, and I don't love it. It's a zero net at the very end because, look, I like stag. I like I like the way it looks. I think there are certain <laughs> knives where the, it looks enhanced with a good piece of stag or jigged bone to resemble stag. However, it makes my shop smell like Salem on Sunday. It <laughs> smells like burning flesh it is just imagine barbecuing a bucket of toenails okay and just how awesome that would be well that's what we have to go through with that jenna hates it she freaks yeah. out every time i do stag um i do like it you can look at knives from sheffield from old sheffield we can say that now yep from old sheffield and you can see 100 year old knives that still have a stag handle now they have some character checking and stuff like that in it but the truth of the matter is i mean here are some knives that got banged around for the last century and they still hold up and and it's natural stag and i'm pretty impressed yeah. by that look at uh the uh, pommels on old wade and butchers oh, on the, those uh, are stag on uh i think marbles had stag yep, pommels they did, also they did. you know those knives are put together fastened on the stag through the pith of the through, stag so not only did it survive just the era. It's actually still structurally sound. Right. So you know, I, I totally agree with you there. Yep. Absolutely. So stag stag gets a nod from me. Uh, it sounds like it gets a nod from Jim. Oh, I love also. working with it. Love as, working with it. As, right. As a tough material, and it looks nice. It's got some natural beauty to it. It doesn't freak out in different climates that dramatically, anyways. And uh, however, it just just I just want you guys to save up. I don't know a year's worth of toenails. And then put them inside of a pie pan, and then take that pie pan and put it over open flame as if you were making Jiffy Pop, and just do that in your garage for like an hour, and then tell me why. Come ask me again why it, I don't like the works. We're not. If you actually go do this, we're not responsible to the the fact that you want to kill yourself after the smell, or that your wife will probably actually murder you. All right, right, so. or divorce you. Yeah, we're not liable for any of that. I just want to throw that out right there. That's so, your yeah. responsibility. So there's the favorite, the least favorite, and the neutral. So the we, neutral. 
Appreciate your guys' questions. Again, feel free to roger up on the question post that we post every week on our Facebook page. And if it is more convenient for you, then go ahead and email us. But we'd love to hear what you guys think. And, Jim, I think that is a podcast. That is a wrap for Episode 6 of Behind the Blade Podcast. Matt Martin for Jim Stewart signing off and reminding you that friends don't let friends buy ugly knives. Have a great week, gang. Mm -hmm.